0: listening to The Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to American artist Carla Gannis.
1: Mixed reality, um, I think, has so much potential. But again, you know, how do we deal with it?
0: Carla shared her insight into the world of emoji using augmented reality for creativity and the current state of digital art in New York. This episode was recorded on location in London, England, where Carla was exhibiting her work Garden of Emoji Delights at the Children of Prometheus exhibition at Furtherfield Gallery. So Carla, you're in town to work with Furtherfield. Could you tell me a little bit about the pieces that you're exhibiting whilst you're here in London?
1: Uh, Sure. So I have the Garden of Emoji Delights, both the video version, which is an animated version of the original Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch. And I also have a print version of the piece, which is 13 feet by 7 feet. So a kind of huge phantasmagoria of Emoji. So, you have this
0: phrase that you use so wonderfully, the emojification. Could you explain what emojification is?
1: Well, I don't think it's entered the lexicon yet. But uh, I describe what I did, which was basically repainting, digitally repainting this Bosch piece. It took me a year to do this. And I think anyone who thinks you're, you know, kind of just pressing a button to produce even digital print work is. Mistaken. Uh, So I rezzed up all of these emoji and also made some new uh, Bosch emoji, Carlo Gannis chimera in the process. And the most apt description in terms of creating a verb for it was emojification or to emojify. Yes. So
0: where did this interest in adapting this piece of work? come about? Where did the initial idea come from?
1: Okay, so it was an emoji light bulb moment. So um, there was a call for an emoji art and design show at iBeam Art and Design Center, and or Art and Technology Center, iBeam Art and Technology Center. And I'd already started to incorporate emoji into my work. I'm really interested in digital semiotics. But... I was in a quandary I was in my studio and I said well how am I going to apply emoji in some way that is really kind of interesting but also I think you know could extend the lexicon outside of just oh these are just happy little symbols and shorthand emotional expressions and Bosch has been you know favorite painter for you know eons, like since I was a kid, and particularly the Garden of Earthly Delights. But it was also something that I'd never seen in person. So I only knew it basically through the internet. And so that seemed like a perfect collision. I also have been doing this Google resu- like Google results project for quite some time. So I searched uh, the Garden of Earthly Delights, and it basically returned as many results as emoji. And so that was the other thing that was really interesting to me that this work of art still resonates 500 years later. And what a about it, you know, makes it resonate like that. And one thing is that it's so enigmatic, because he really had, or developed Bosch, the painter, developed this very personal kind of iconography. And so I just got the idea, like, literally within like, 10 minutes and I decided to just do it. And so I stayed up all night, which I tend to do. And so I did hell first, which I have to say is the most fun. It's a triptych and the hell panel is really the most fun. And so I emojified hell first and 6.30 AM rolls around and I'm like, I can't believe I did this. I don't know how people are going to respond to this, but here it is. So what have some of the responses been to this work? It took on a life of its own, I must say. Uh, It's been shared quite a bit online uh, via Instagram and Twitter, Tumblr, et cetera. And um, one thing that's kind of fascinating is there is the animated version and there's also the physical version. And um, both of those have kind of taken on lives of their own. There's one thing about how dynamic the animated version is, and it actually gave me latitude to kind of um, expand the narratives and talk about kind of 21st century things. The middle panel um, is depopulated of animals and humans, so kind of a to the Anthropocene and potentialities, and things like that. But um, so there's been a lot of um, popular response, and a lot of younger people, particularly, have really responded to, to it and written me, you know, emails and these kind of things. And and I've appreciated that. Um, some people currently, the piece is also on view at Sotheby's in New York, uh, which is a kind of you know an established fine art institution and. Um, and, and actually an auction house. And, um, and it was interesting when they posted it on their Instagram to read some of the comments. And some people were really outraged that I'd done this to a Bosch and felt like I had deboshed a Bosch. So it's, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, I, I think if you make a work of art that, that people love and hate, that means that you're actually doing something. If everybody's, you know, just kind of middle of the road about it, Maybe it's it's not really effective, but if people have strong emotional reactions, whether it's positive or negative, maybe that means something because we definitely can't all agree.
0: Well, you, you've said in your presentation something with regards to how do you make an artwork ubiquitous, but at the same time scarce. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so that's a, you know, that's something fascinating that I think a lot of, um, new media or digital artists have to contend with. We really straddle two models. I mean, for those of us who choose to still work within an, uh, a more traditional art market, which is kind of a gallery market where your work, um, is sold to collectors. And with digital work, which can be reproduced infinitely, like past Benjamin's work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, the work of art in the age of digital reproduction, we know if it's produced digitally, can be reproduced infinitely. But when you're working with a gallery or with museums, or particularly with a gallery, um, you still are working with scarcity. And so you limit your editions because collectors, you know, want to feel like that they're purchasing something or they're investing in something that isn't just going to be shared, you know, like movies or television or music it's a totally different model but you know most artists who like myself are really engaged with social networks and and uh, network culture in general and that actually plays into a lot of the work that I produce you know I want to share my work online and and that ubiquity is really important and online the value of the work actually increases the more it's shared right so the more ubiquitous it becomes the more times people share it or Repost it, the more valuable it, it becomes. So it's an inverse relationship to the scarcity model. And so I try to kind of negotiate those. One way that, you know, I can do that is through resolution, right? Keto Sterile has, you know, written that great essay about in defense of the poor image. But, you know, posting poor images online, and when I said earlier that the Garden of Emoji Delights has taken on a life of its own, it's been shared and shared and shared. It's been made into dresses, you know, whether I wanted that or not, that's another story. But, um, um, anyway, it has been shared, and but it's a low-resolution image, right? Then for the scarcity model, for the gallery, you know, I have a 13-foot by 7-foot. I'm sorry I'm bad with the metric system, but, you know, a large piece um, that the file for that is several gigabytes. I would never release that online. I mean, one, who could even download it? It would take forever for them to even see it. But, I, but that is kind of something that works with, you know, that's the authentic original piece Super high res, but then I can share these lower res versions of it online, right? Without in any way challenging, you know, the uh, scarcity of the authentic, you know, large scale, large res piece.
0: But doesn't the original, doesn't the original painting have that challenge anyway? So I know where it's exhibited in Madrid, you can't photograph it, you can't be seen to hold a phone up to it, and I know that was a particular challenge for the second part of this work.
1: Right. So I then augmented the Garden of Moji Delights, um, or I augmented the Garden of Earthly Delights. So I went back to the original again, and I turned certain... details of the original painting. Of course, they were reproductions. I didn't go into the the Prado and cut parts of the painting or anything like that. So I had reproductions that I uh, found high-res photos online, of course, of the original. Uh, there are high-res photos of the Garden of Earthly Delights online. And uh, so I then turned those into AR markers, Right So they're they're basically uh, the uh, image tags that then can release an augmented experience, right. And so then I programmed an augmented experience for five different markers. So I finally got to see the original, Last year in November, it was actually for another Furtherfield show in Spain, and I go to the Prado um, and I have this wonderful person who's, you know, giving me a tour, but then she lets me know that no photography is allowed. And I'm flummoxed because I'd been planning for months, because I'd, you know, created these augments to go up to the painting to, you know, one specific location, hold up my phone and get my augment um so I took the tour with her and then I returned to the painting later and surreptitiously raised my phone really fast made sure that I already had you know the the program the app launched the AR uh, app and got my augment and and it was just fantastic because I finally you know I had my 3D version overlaying the original you know and there's something about that it is kind of a museum hack I suppose but but also I'm I'm kind of demoralized by by the fact that, you know, certain museums haven't really kept a pace with the culture that and time that we live in, you know? And I think, you know, in New York, for example, New York museums, um, I did a project at the Metropolitan last year. They allow photography now. There are actually some other, there's some pieces in the Metropolitan Museum that are augmented. Uh, a friend of mine, Claudia Hart, has done a project with her students where they augmented works of art in the Chicago Museum of Art, or it's the Art Institute of Chicago Museum. And, you know so so some museums are starting to get on board with this and understanding that there's no way you can really in in the digital and internet age, you know, th- it's, it's going to be really difficult to police that. But are you so. already coming up against
0: folks who want to legislate people from putting a virtual layer onto mm-hmm. a physical painting or artwork or object?
1: Um, That's a really good question. And so far, I actually was teaching AR last semester, and I was working with Blipar. And that's when I first realized, because I'd been working with them kind of carte blanche, because all of the work that I was augmenting until the Garden of Emoji Delights, which is in the public domain at this point. So there was no kind of intellectual property. It's a 500-year-old painting. But before that, I uh, augmented 52 drawings, the Selfie Drawings Project. And all of that was my work and, you know, was my that, you know, is my intellectual property. And so there was no issue of of my um, kind of subverting something else. You know, there are things within the drawings that I made, that could possibly be subversive. And then when I augmented them, I kind of expanded those themes. But I wasn't um, appropriating from anything. But when I started teaching this semester, some of my students were really interested in doing that. And BlipR has an approval process for their Blips, and there were some that they wouldn't approve. And I understand that, and it made me realize, though, why artists traditionally um, have either built their own apps, and, I mean, generally that was kind of the early NetArt days, the 90s, early 2000s. That's what a lot of artists were doing just because the technology wasn't out there. So build your own thing. Or there are artists like, you know, someone like Man Bartlett, who's done, you know, all of these kind of interventions using these proprietary networks, you know, but like the the challenge there is that they will try to legislate that or what happens to your art if those networks go down. I mean, that's the other thing that tech artists have to deal with all the time is obsolescence. Um, And so it did give me pause when I realized, oh, wow, some of my students' blips can't get, you know, approved, like one, she used a Barbie as one of her trigger images. Also, though, you have to understand, I mean, blipbar is a huge corporation. So like this is not a slam on them. I mean, they run a company, you know, and if uh, one of my students decides to use the Barbie image and then someone else, someone, uh, you know, someone who a Mattel, Mattel or, a or something or a Hasbro, right. You know, there's going to be an issue if that exact same image is like is programmed to release two different blips with two different, very different messages. Right. And um, and so I can understand that. And so what that means and what I've been thinking about is returning to something like open source AR toolkit, you know, and working with Unity and kind of, you know, working with a platform where I I feel like I have more latitude or my students have more latitude um, in terms of, you know, subversiveness, if that's, you know, the intent, right?
0: Do you think we're going to see that extended even further when corporations like Apple are releasing their AR kits? So, I mean, the dream for Blipper was always, in my conversations at least with the founder of Blipper, is to turn AR into something like a tweet. So, you, you tweet. And to do AR, you would blip. They wanted to turn it into a verb, almost. That was the dream. Which they, oh, they have. I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it, I mean, again, it's so not it in the lexicon. So it's going
0: with you know blipping a piece of content. It's not in the lexicon. I mean, the dream for all of these AR companies, especially early on in about 2012, was to become part of the OS. So you would be on the camera app. You wouldn't have to open multiple separate different apps and uh, do an AR activation from uh, a very specific app. I wonder with Apple's AR kit where it is going into OS, it is going into the operating system of the phone. um, We're going to see almost those corporations, whether it's Apple or Samsung, policing the virtual Space? Are you working with ARKit at the moment, or is it slightly too early for your? Yeah, your it's students? too
1: early for me to talk about AR toolkit, but um, I uh, am fascinated by that in terms of Apple because it's interesting. I, I Think back to that 1984 ad where, you know, Apple was basically like defeating Big Brother, right? And now they have this closed box system. And, you know, it is alarming to me. It's alarming to me about Adobe and that all of our software is now cloud-based. And, you know, if you don't pay your monthly bill, you, you no longer have access to your intellectual property, you know? And those things are alarming to me, particularly as an artist who's been working with, you know, digital technologies for over 20 years, right? And so what does that mean for us? and you know we already see this on Twitter and Instagram in terms of nudity. I mean, I you know, you go into any museum and you're going to look at a Greek vase painting and there's or you're going to look at a Bosch and and there's some kind of crazy stuff going on, you know, provocative nudity and and, and I won't describe some of the scenes here. Jo- go to the museum, you'll see them. Do, do you know if Instagram's blocking those sorts of images? The, the classical art images. Corbet was uh Corbet, Origin of the Universe, was blocked on Facebook um, several times. One user, I mean, probably more than that. I don't have, you know, the statistics or, you know, articles here with me. So um, was uh, his account was deleted. Instagram, there's been this um, issue about the nipple, so like lots of women have been, you know, um, posting free the nipple 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 and these kind of things you know and I mean it's just puritanical I mean coming from America where we're rooted in you know like these kind of puritanical you know uh, extremes I'm I'm fascinated that in a technological age we're so fearful of the body and um, so that's something I've been seeing a lot on these proprietary networks and everyone's like well they're free so you know what can you expect but like they're our main method of communication and and so if they're going to continue to close down like that and censor and if AR also censors if there's nudity and you know you can't post that augment i mean that's that's really a shame
0: or it would alter pixelate yeah, certain, certain
1: environments. I mean, uh, I'm thinking,
0: especially with regards to, to galleries and using AR and your your camera app inside of galleries. I almost wonder if they're going to buy the virtual space around that gallery. So they're going to buy this sort of geolocation around that gallery and any activation that's triggered within, say, the Tate Moderns. Uh, the, you know, the, the mile that makes up the Tate Modern on the on the uh, bank of the River Thames. They're going to police what goes and what doesn't. Go into that gallery in the same way that one Canada Tower in Canary Wolf has bought all of the airspace around that building so that nobody can build a building higher than one Canada Tower. I wonder if the Tate Modern is going to buy the virtual geolocated space so that they get to control what sort of... AR content. activations, the content control, essentially, d- driven by something like geolocation or RFID tags or something that's going to allow them to actually make decisions on what content is allowed and isn't allowed within their gallery space. Because right now it's the Wild West.
1: I was about to say, right now it's the Wild Wild West. There's Manifest AR. You know, they have in the past, now they're getting invited to do legitimate installations and exhibitions at museums and institutions. But in the past, you know, they have installed their work at the Venice They've installed their work in the MoMA. They've done these things, these interventions, right? Because you could place AR tags or geolocated tags anywhere, right? And it's the wild, wild west. And, you know, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll see like a hundred different applications you can use right now. And so all of these different AR applications, I've got, I've used Vuforia and Blipar for, so where I have the same tag, but if you use a different app, you get a different experience, right? And that was fun to just kind of experiment with. But what happens if they really start, Policing that. I I remember reading recently about um, at the advent of airplanes. You know, there when you own property, it's it's like what you were just saying. When you own property, this was in the United States at least. um, You owned it all the way up to the sky, apparently. And so, when airplanes started flying over, people started filing lawsuits saying, "You, that is my land, and that is my sky, and you're not allowed to fly over it." And so, are we going to start getting lawsuits, right, or something like that, because people are trying to own geolocated space. I think that that would be really appalling, actually, because I, I really like the idea of AR as well as the internet, too. <laughs> you know, still having that kind of free reign for, you know, um, uh, personal expression. But I'm, I'm sure institutions like a, you know, a major museum will want to control, you know, uh, what kind of content could be released when people, you know, have a particular app. I'm sure that could happen in the future. Do
0: you, do you think it's not of immediate Concern right now because it still requires the need to guide the user to trigger an AR experience. So Blipper, on at least a lot of their the work that they produce, especially for advertising, there needs to be that little logo. Blip this content. Download our app here. This is how you discover how to, you know, release an AR piece of content. Do you think th- that? issue with regards to user experience is the reason why it just isn't in the public consciousness yet. It still requires education to know that this stuff even exists out there. So for example, you go and see the painting that you've augmented, the Earthly Delights painting that you've augmented, there's no no trigger.
1: There's no trigger. It's a big uh, secret. I'm the only person who really knows that, you know, right now. like I have um, actually done an exhibition where I did exhibit the uh, four different um, small pieces from the original that I uh, reprinted out as AR triggers. And so, you know, in that context in New York, people know, but like... Yes, it's not ubiquitous. We've been using those words scarce and ubiquitous. And um, I really discovered that recently. My students have an exhibition on uh, view right now at the Pratt Library in Brooklyn, New York. And we were all really excited because they were augmenting the entire library. So they created all these different applications and games. And it takes you, you know, as you um, start to interact with their different pieces, you are um, kind of asked to travel throughout the library. You find out different things that you might not have known before. You go into the stacks. You go into these areas. You find out the history of the library. Very exciting. You know, this this is kind of um, I, I, I can just see such future potential for this. You know, that having this other overlay for a library. I mean, in 1997, already at Columbia, they'd created an AR app. You know, you had to wear it on your back with, you know, a visor um, where you had a HUD basically and you could find out all of this information at Columbia. I remember going to that talk and I was like, amazing. I can't wait to have one. And it's taken 20 years, right? And so, I mean, that's the other thing, that it is still nascent when, you know, this um, technology has been in development for, you know, decades. But anyway, getting back to the point, so my students and I install this, and we have, you know, a little bit of signage. We have the thing about the blip bar, and we're just like, oh, people are just going to go to town. They don't. Yeah. You have to handhold still, even with the popularity of something like Pokemon Go, which, you know, that's anybody who's a parent, they know they know their, their kids are doing it. But like they're still like, oh, that's something my kids do. So they haven't really taken it seriously. Kids are like still, you know, kind of utilizing it more as a game space. And so when there's this research based project at a library, you know, with these different image tags and some of them are really fun and some of them are like speculative fictions. They are, you know, have time travel clocks that take you on this AR experience all these things people don't engage and and you know that's still a real hurdle so I think you're correct that it's not you know something that's really imminent in terms of um, institutions really kind of policing what space or what kind of augmented reality can you know kind of exist within you know a particular domain physical domain so I don't think that's imminent but you know even talking to the director of the library we used the front facade of the library as a tag on the poster and I was like like now how do you feel about that in perpetuity right in perpetuity trying to pronounce that word word uh, in perpetuity uh, for that particular um, image of your library, that will always trigger this one thing. Do you want me to deactivate it at the end of the exhibition? Or do you want that to go on, you know, in space? Or some of the students who, in their projects, have actually augmented certain books in the library that, you know, if Blipar, for example, is still around 10 years from now, somebody might take this book off the shelf and discover something. And I said, you know, how do you feel about that, too? You know, and really thinking about that, but we really don't know for one, one, um, having been someone I used to teach Flash, for example, I, I, I've taught obsolete technologies, Director, of Flash, these kind of things. We don't even know, you know, if that content will be accessible in the future, or what apps will actually last. So, well,
0: this, is, this is the the concern with the larger players getting involved. Yeah, you know, like it, Apple, yeah. The, Tim
1: Cook loves AR more than VR. Yeah,
0: and and we was beginning to see some of the playful interventions that have been done with the AR kit. Where, and it's, it's mainly manipulating the current environment. So what they can do very well, because they bought Mateo is they can take and capture the real world, reprocess that, and then place AR content back onto the world. So yeah. the, the thing that at least I think that Apple is going to to launch as uh, RGBD, so they're going to understand depth before right. anybody else understands right. depth, and that that's based on uh, 2013 technology, and that the, the Matteo had that, um, and it was surreal to witness. But a whole bunch of audience members in Germany got very very excited over the fact that you could put IKEA furniture behind. Physical tables, because for AI that was an impossibility. You would trigger something, and it would not understand where the ground is or where other 3D objects right. in in real space were. And I I genuinely believe it's going to be a case of we're going to be buying virtual land in the same way that. Second
1: life. I mean, yeah, think about, you know, you had an economy and you were buying virtual land and, and real estate and those kind of things. And now it's just going to extend.
0: Is Apple then the real estate agent for, say, this square mile of Russell Square? I mean, who polices Russell Square? Do we give London <laughs> the entire virtual map and go, all right, you guys can work out which council looks after, you know, this area and what can be triggered within this area? I know, here's it's the British library, so and the British Library.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is really, again... Um, you know, I was saying simulacra and simulation where the, you know, the the map actually takes on the proportions and dimensions of the real city, right? And then the map actually covers the city and you don't know if it's the map or the city that's real anymore, right? You know, I mean, and I think with AR, we could get to that or HoloLens. I had someone come in this semester and demo HoloLens to my students and that was really fascinating to me. Mixed reality, um, I think, has so much potential. But again, you know, how do we deal with it? I mean, when you were talking about systems, like the Library of Congress in the United States, they've had, like, there was a Dewey Decimal System and then there was a Library of Congress. They've had these codified systems. And right now, everyone's making lots of different systems. And none of them really are, um, you know, coalescing into some one single thing. And we don't have that yet. And so that can lead to chaos. And I think that's, you know, what a lot of people are uh, losing sleep over right now. What are we going to do? How are we going to, one, still attract people to come to physical locations like the British Library? Because there are things there in that physical space worth, you know, actually um, interacting with, right? And and that everything doesn't have to just be an interface or everything isn't just from a virtual, um, you know, territory. And so, yeah, I think people are trying to develop these strategies. And that's why in a way, you know, AR, mixed reality is, has more potential. I think that's why Tim Cook might be interested in it is that you still, the physical space is still a component, right? With virtual reality, like you're just, somewhere else altogether. Right. And VR is all the rage right now. But in terms of disseminating information, in terms of keeping us in touch still with our, you know, with the physical, you know, I mean, it's all real life now. I I don't even distinguish IRL URL now. I mean, it's, it's all real life, but like, how do we maintain a foot in both simultaneously, both the virtual and the physical, right?
0: I'm so worried it's going to become a real estate game.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I I could imagine that. I mean, I remember thinking about Second Life. Do you remember that film Second Skin where people were, you know, people got married in Second Life?
0: Couple, it was yeah, Life It Life 2.0 yeah, and they yeah, yeah. stories. And, you know, yeah, was...
1: quite a few of those films that came out where people just kind of lost themselves in Second Life, which, I mean, if you think of it now, it's so rudimentary, right, compared to what we're talking about. What these, you know, we're talking about the holodeck, right, now. and um, But something more than the holodeck because the holodeck was kind of still an escape, which maybe in a VR world, that's, that's something, a place for... storytelling or whatever. But what happens if we get Werner Vinge's Rainbow's End, that 2006 novel he wrote about an AR universe where everybody is wearing and there is there is no time where AR is turned off. AR has become, you know, it's the IOT, you know, um, and and your entire waking experience is augmented you know, and and what happens, you know, when that becomes reality. And and I can, you know, see that as as a real possibility. We'll have, you know, contacts and those kind of things. But like, how are we going to kind of control these different domains? And is it going to become something that is controlled and dominated by the 1%? Oh, again?
0: There was a futurist in the UK who very offhandly said, it's going to be wonderful when we get ubiquitous AR because we'll be able to walk down the street and pixelate out all the homeless people you sit there and go oh, oh are you kidding God, that's so no, classic That's not what you're supposed to do with this
1: not at all and that's you know that's a real danger because we're already talking about I mean given the current political climate you know um, there's been a lot of talk at least in the states um, about bubbles right and um, because of these bubbles we currently have a orange-skinned blonde tyrant as our president and um, a lot of liberal left-leaning intellectuals were not in touch. They they'd kind of pixelated out, you know, uh, people in the West or the sou- Southern parts of the United States, you know, and they weren't aware of um, this strong nationalism that was arising. And a lot of that was due to their social networks and, and, you know, this kind of bubbled environment where you're getting, you know, your news source and you basically are perpetuating your worldview based on the friends that you choose and the things that you read. And you have no idea about the homeless people you have. No idea about coal miners who, you know, um, think that we're all intellectual elitists in New York or California or these kind of things. And in mass, they were able to vote, you know, this guy in. And and so that's a real danger. I, I've actually had a student who made a film about that where, you know, she created – in her film, she created this uh, future kind of technology, augmented technology, where, yeah, you put on these goggles and, and you no longer see the homeless people and everything's Wizard of Oz. And interestingly enough, it was um, – Um, The writer of Wizard of Oz, he imagined, L. Frank Baum is his name, in 1901, he uh, wrote another book, The Electrical Fairy Tale, I can't remember the exact title of it, where he imagined augmented reality. But his was rather didactic. And so in his augmented reality world, you put on a pair of goggles, and and you basically are able to... uh, understand or see the personality of a person based on letters that are projected on their forehead. And so you can intuit things that you wouldn't see with your physical eyes through these goggles. And so they're just letters. And so like um, S is smart and D is detestable or something like this. I don't remember what the the system was. So it was really didactic. But then we see Black Mirror, for example, that popular British television series where this is, you know, really playing out. And it's no longer, you know, science fiction. It's just um, a step behind what is quite possible and imminent.
0: So I wonder how your students are engaging with this technology. Do they see it as something very, very exciting, or are they making those sorts of challenging interventions into what this technology may give birth to accidentally.
1: You know, we are at this point, you know, to, to reference myths, Pandora's box or, or, you know, the Promethean fire. And um, when we had the HoloLens demo, for example, that was so exciting. I was actually the kid in class that day. I was jumping up and down. I was like, since I was a kid, I've been imagining this Princess Leia and the holograms and, you know, being able to map an entire world and abase the laws of physics. Oh, my God, this is amazing. And some of my students actually, you know, when they were writing their blogs about the experience, some of them actually were questioning, you know, what these implications uh, could be. More than me, I was the happiest, happy, happy futurist that day. Um, but you know, a lot of them in their work, and and, and I, th- I was wondering if this was a product of using Blipar, which you know was a fantastic experience, and they were really supportive. They came to the sh- the student show. Um, some people from uh, Blipar New York. But you know, I wondered if they also, knowing that like certain blips couldn't get approved, like certain markers, you know, if that was something that um, they self censored in a way, and also because they were doing a research-based project in a library. And, you know, I, I think of future classes and where we could actually do public interventions and things like that, or, you know, just taking it out of, you know, certain institutions where you feel like, oh, well, I, I want to make sure I don't rock the boat too much. But definitely, you know, in a lot of the writings that my students uh, were doing this semester, you know, quite a few of them were questioning, you know, issues of privacy, for example, which comes up again in Rainbow's End, uh, Werner Vinge's piece, you know, privacy, when you can start to, you know, see through walls and these kind of things, um, uh, which Eve, Ivan Sutherland predicted in 1968 when he uh, produced the Sword of Damocles, the first head-mounted display. He's kind of the father of AR and VR. Um, and uh, and and so they were, you know, talking about privacy and, you know, also in China where they have these personal apps and your credit rating actually increases or decreases based on how you behave publicly and your interactions with people and so there's this one to one like virtual physical you know correlation and it and, and it's it's kind of frightening right and in, and it's an app and you know kind of like what we saw in Nosedov, which is a, a kind of you know rudimentary AR app right and you have like um, a HUD again that's overlaying everything and then you can rate people and rate things you know and 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 what are the implications of that in the future especially when you can't turn it off you know in Werner Vingy again in Rainbows Inn. You can't really turn it off. Or if you do, if you don't wear, so to speak, you're a pariah. That's the other thing, you know, like what about the people who decide to not engage? I mean, we already know we can't really go off the grid and participate in culture these days. I mean, I'm saying this, particularly as a Westerner, There's still tons of people around the world who are not networked. So I I should definitely, you know, balance that, that comment, but like speaking in terms of you and I and people who are kind of engaged in, you know, this rhetoric and, and, you know, in art and technology, we kind of can't go off the grid now, right. To be engaged.
0: I wonder if there is almost a um, implicit filter bubble of doing a digital MA, you don't see the other side of the coin. If you're a digital M, a digital arts MA student, your life is digital arts. You're surrounded by digital arts. Digital is kind of core of what you do. You don't actually see the other side of the coin. But I know your background isn't necessarily <laughs> digital though. No, no. Your background is is fine arts oil painting, is that right?
1: Yes. And um, and half of my family, when I first moved to New York and was trying to assimilate, um, I lost my very thick Southern accent because um, I'm from the Southern part of the United States and often uh, did not reveal that half of my family is from the mountains of North Carolina. So um, I can now reveal this, but um, for a UK audience, this might not mean anything anyway, but um the mountains of North Carolina, the Appalachian Mountains, um, growing up there as a child, it was like growing up in the 19th century. And I, I visited there. I didn't grow up there. So when I'd visit the family homestead, so to speak, you know, uh, it was still a wood-burning stove. Um, my family members made these musical instruments and sang these classical mountain ballads that were hundreds of years old and actually dated back to Ireland and, you know, these kind of things. And, and so it was a very traditional old culture. So that is something that probably still plays into my practice and why I'm so Interested in history and also finding collision points between past, present, and speculative future, and so that's part of my childhood. And then I was also a classically trained piano pianist. I was uh, playing piano and teaching piano by the time I was fourteen, and and it was all classical. I was also classically trained as a painter. My dad, though, was really into computers, taking me to Siggraph conferences, and I rebelled by being a classicist. And it wasn't until after I um, obtained two degrees, a BFA and MFA, I got them back to back in painting, oil painting, that I moved to New York. And what got me to New York was building a database for the John McEnroe Library. So computers brought me to New York. And my dad sent me a computer and sent me a database. And it was all DOS. And I learned that on the fly, realized that I had an aptitude. I didn't realize, but I'd inherited it from my dad. And I got to New York. I started assisting artists who were working with digital technologies. I Threw away all my paintings and kind of started anew. It was a, a John Baldessari move. He he lit all of his paintings and had a funeral pyre, but um, I just threw mine away. And and it's funny because my dad still picks on me to this day. The first computer arts grant I got, he said, see, I told you so. I told you the future of art would be in this. But I do think, back to your original question, the fact that I have that background does give me a different kind of um, relationship to technology because I do have, I mean, one, I'm not you know born digital for one. Um, and because I have this relationship and. This history with um, the the analog world, and actually because of you know my family roots, a very very 19th century kind of traditional world. You know, it always you know um, kind of plays into my philosophy or my perspective on things. So I'm always kind of counterbalancing, and I'm I'm weighing things, and I'm looking at the digital world, and I'm getting very enthusiastic about it, but I'm also remembering, and I have real experiences that I can draw from and remembering that there's this other world and how do we kind of, um, balance our perspectives. And I think that balance is always really important.
0: How long have you spent in New York? Do you mind me asking? 22 years. 22, I'm, I'm a New seen, Yorker. <laughs> you're in New Yorker now. And uh, have you seen the growth of digital art over the course of those 22 years, or has digital art always been part of the New York scene? It strikes me that it's that at least digital art is allowed on the East Coast. But never felt like it existed on the West Coast. I remember asking friends. I was like, Oh dude, dude, when I first arrived in San Francisco, I was like, "Great, take me to the digital art shows." And they're like, "No, dude, right. art shows. There's, there's no digital art shows here. If you want to go see art, there's a SF MoMA, but they're closing that down. that's going to be redone. But uh, if you're a if you're a computer scientist here, you don't make art. You go and work for Google. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. I just wonder can digital art only exist." on the East Coast.
1: There are good digital artists on the West Coast, and, you know, and I think a lot of things are changing, but I also um, can share y- with you some anecdotes about 22 years in New York in digital arts. I mean, one thing when I first came to New York, you know, a lot of my friends were painters because I had a degree in painting, you know, and and um, and I started databasing this ar- library, this art library at this art school, and they were all painters. And, uh, and then I started to, you know, as I mentioned, move away from that, um, but... But I remember when I first decided to embark on, you know, a a new pathway and and working. First, I was doing Xerox art, photography, video, all of these things. And and it ultimately led me to just, you know, producing things, you know, with the computer, um, which is the ubiquitous, you know, postmodern art tool, I think. Um, Or Art Partner, actually. It's your collaborator. Um, But anyway, I had friends who totally maligned me. They were like, you're never going to have an art career. Are you stupid? Why are you not making paintings? That's what sells, you know. And then... um, In the early 2000s, or actually late 1990s, early 2000s, you know, with Rhizome, there was a lot of energy and excitement about digital art. I had this uh, digital alter ego, uh, Sister Gemini, and and there were some galleries interested in doing some things with her, and, you know, she was going to get kind of like holographically projected and all these things. Then 9-11 happened in New York, and there was this conservative backlash, And, and in the art world, I mean, it was really, really predominant, and, you know, there was a return to like physical objects, paintings, things that people knew would sell because, you know, also the economy just kind of tanked with that. And again, in 2008, that happened. So a lot of this is tied to the economy, I think. But also there, you know, I would um, was showing with uh, kind of mainstream commercial galleries. I was going to art fairs and these things and people were scratching their head. They were, do you know how many photography collections I'm in? Because people didn't even, in their museums, they didn't have a label for, you know, this hybrid stuff I was doing. They were like, is it a video game? Is it a, you know, what is it? And it's it's a composite. It's like, I embrace hybrid and most, you know, digital artists do. But it took a long time even in New York. Um, You know, there have always been, you know, Groups who you know, and, and as long as you could kind of find those people and and shows and things going on, but it was kind of an alternative art history, and still there is kind of this digital divide, you know, even in New York, but but you know, um, less so now because of galleries like Transfer Galleries and Bitforms and Postmasters who have been really promoting you know um, hybrid work or digital work or new media work for you know quite some time, and Transfer is kind of young on the scene, four years, but um, Kalani has just made major inroads. To to, to kind of um, broadening its appeal, and 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 I think a lot of people have been afraid of it. So that said, on the West Coast, who's there? I mean, like there's Dorothy Santos. I know. Um, I, I, I think things are changing there. I was part of a Silicon Valley art fair like two years ago, and. Um, Uh, Isabel Walcott-Draves, who uh, leads leaders in software and art, uh, organized this. And the one thing that I think you're still um, correct about is all of the Silicon Valley people were just like, oh, I want to buy a Picasso, but I don't want to buy digital art. And I don't understand that. Like, when this is what you do during the day, you still don't think of that as art or art that is collectible. And and so I'm still a little baffled by that.
0: Is, is that the major difference between, say, so the UK and the US? Your bias in the US is to think of how does this artwork work? become commercial or how is it sold? Whereas in the UK, we have a little bit of a buffer thanks to things like the Arts Council England or other grants for the arts or grants for digital arts knowledge transfer networks and the ways in which we can get access or digital artists can get access to public money, which makes the impetus on making something commercial or sellable less important. I wonder what your thoughts are on the difference between say Europe and, and the US and how it views digital art.
1: Uh, yeah, I think that is a, a really good point, and I think it is an issue in the United States, and is becoming more of an issue. Again, with um, the people who are in power currently, uh, they're actually planning to make more and more cuts to the National Endowment for the Arts and supportive arts of any kind. And um, there are not as many grants, and you know, in a place like New York, it's super competitive. And so, as a New York-based artist, I mean, it's it's difficult to separate yourself from you know, like it's kind of the the uh, little. Fish in a really huge pond. And so there is more of an emphasis in terms of when you're working with galleries or even people who, you know, curators, independent curators, you know, to think about these things in terms of commodifiability. You know, and most artists I know, um, particularly who are, you know, working with um, emerging technologies, they just want to have time to make their stuff. They don't care about selling it, they don't care about being rich and famous, like, you know, I, I don't know, Jeff Koons, who by the way, is now embarking on a VR project. I don't know what that'll be like, but <clears throat> we'll see. You know, he's one, I, I don't want to malign him. He's one model, okay? And and that's, that's one model, you know, where the artist has kind of worked in this system, they're very wealthy. They've got a, a studio full of assistants and 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 they make work that is highly commodifiable. Generally, it's also um, scarce. It's one of a kind, these kind of things, sculptures, et cetera. Um, but a lot of artists I know who are coming out of um, the 60s, the dematerialized art object, coming out of kind of more conceptual lineages, you know, aren't thinking about like, oh, I want to make something that I can sell. But then there is this pressure because like, how else are you going to pay for your time to produce things. I mean, and a lot of us, you know, take the academic route. I'm, a, you know, now a full-time assistant chair and professor at Pratt Department of Digital Arts. And many of my friends who we, many of us had worked, you know, uh, in corporate jobs too, to kind of uh, pay for our art habit, so to speak. Um, and, you know, after a while, you get tired too, you know, you come in after work and generally what I'd do is I'd learn a technology if I was working at a game company or, you know, doing web design, and then I'd be like, oh, okay. Now I've got to apply this to my own art and subvert it in some interesting way, right? And so you have this daytime life and this nighttime life, but that that gets really difficult to maintain over a period of time, right? And so then you do start to deal with these pressures about, um, okay, I applied for this many grants and there are only a handful and... Ten thousand other people applied for them too, and I didn't get them. You know, because there's just a dearth of of grant money in the United States. And so, what am I going to do? What am I going to like? How am I going to kind of cow to a market? And that's something we've seen with post internet art, for example. Uh, a younger generation of um, artists, particularly even net artists. I mean, because post internet, you know, yeah, and post digital, but um, post internet artists who um, actually have re- have returned to the gallery or have. Um, gallery representation early on because they are making objects that are inspired by the internet, but they're not network based, they actually exist in a physical domain. And so they can then enter the market. And that's been maybe, you know, post-internet, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on it, but like it has been a kind of um, polarizing um, neologism. Uh, But I think it does kind of indicate um, a newer generation's response to uh, wanting to um, kind of align themselves more with mainstream art market and trying to find ways to do that. And, and not all of them have to mean that you're um, selling out, so to speak. But it is a quandary, you know, when, um, you know, you just want to make work and it would be great if we lived in a country where, like in the UK or Canada, where there was more support for the arts.
0: We kind of come full circle then because the other interesting thing about the Garden of Emoji Delights is it does appeal to the Snapchat generation. There's yeah. something very viral, something very playful. Although it's a serious piece of digital art, there's something that very young kids would find very engaging because it is emojis and it's something yeah. they recognise within their culture. Yeah. We, we brushed over it very briefly, but I wonder what one of those sorts of interactions that you're having with uh, you know, the emails you're getting or the, the Instagram comments you're getting with something like that. And I also wonder if that sort of engagement Raises the value of that physical final piece as well. D- do digital artists need to play both those games? Make something that will also get enough kind of earned media inside of PR so that it kind of elevates the artist. Do you think it's because there's something innately viral and playful about this?
1: And perverse and strange and, you know, a kind of perverse appropriation of emoji, you know, to kind of reinstantiate it as a fine art language, for example, and those kind of things. When I was in grad school, I wrote an essay on Giotto, and I did a lot of research on this 13th century painter and uh, this particular fresco chapel, uh, this fresco cycle at the Arena Chapel. And, um, and it was amazing to find out how he was really interested in the vernacular of his day. Likewise, I've done research on Bosch, Same thing. It was about the common language of the day, and that's what influenced their visual iconography. And I have compared both of them to pop artists from the 60s, right? And that like, when you speak that kind of language, for example, Giotto, he was this hybrid artist, so to speak, because he was still in the medieval time, but like a precursor to the Renaissance. So what he did that is so fascinating to me is he took um, this Byzantine iconography and took it away or off of the ceiling, right, where you're looking up at God and Mary and all these people and like you have to feel like a lowly human. He brought it down to human scale. So this chapel, this whole fresco cycle, it's right eye level with you, right? So he could speak to the common man, the common woman the person who didn't speak Latin, but he was also smart enough to encode that work with a kind of intelligence that the people who spoke Latin, right, the intelligentsia could also take something from it. And so it, like— was and has been an impactful painting or fresco cycle like the Bosch has been impactful for 500 years because it can emanate multiple messages and it can speak to people of many different demographics. And that's something, you know, that I don't think is a problem. I think because I think of my own identity, I've done a uh, selfie project, which is all about hybrid identity too, and like elasticity, you know, and, and, um, and uh, so, you know, I, I don't think that's a problem. Now, for art critics, sometimes that's a problem, right? Because they're like, oh, that's too popular. But I'm okay with that. I'm okay with my work actually um, resonating with a 20-year-old and resonating with a 65-year-old art critic right? Because if you actually spend time with the work or you spend time with the animation, there are all these clues. There's all these things encoded that are like, like Walter Benjamin's text is encoded in this piece if you look in the hell panel. So there's all this kind of philosophical stuff in there if you like actually spend time. But you know, if you just have like one interpretation and you get that and you're 18 years old, that's fine with me too. It, it doesn't have to be binary. It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive.
0: Thank you to Carla Gannis for sharing her unique insight into the emojification of everyday life. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.